Turn in your copy of God's Word this morning to Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah is found in the Old Testament. If you're not familiar with the book of Jeremiah, it's probably uh, roughly two-thirds of the way through your copy of God's Word, Jeremiah. And as you turn there, I would also say once you find Jeremiah 31, I would go ahead and just maybe put a piece of paper or, or finger or something also in Hebrews 8. We'll look at Hebrews 8 at the end of our time together this morning, so you may just mark those two places. As you, as you find your places this morning in Jeremiah 31 and Hebrews 8, I, I simply want to remind you that the Bible you hold in your hands and that you're flipping the pages of right now is not some random gathering of wisdom. It's not a, a random listing of moral do's and don'ts that is just kind of thrown in there and we just kind of flip around and find something that makes us feel good or makes us know what is right. It's not a series of 66 disconnected books that have no relationship to one another. They're just kind of thrown together in random order and, and, and put, it, put together to form the Bible. No, what you hold in your hands is the account of God's creation, of man's rebellion, of what God did to redeem man, to save man out of his rebellion, and how God will restore all things to how they should be and are designed to be, all things made new. It is the account of God's work of redemption for all of history, from the beginning to the end. And what you find when you look at Scripture and when you read Scripture and study it as you walk through Scripture, you find out that covenants are very important in the narrative of Scripture. As we go through the account of what God's done among us, we, we learn that this, this idea of a covenant is important. And we see it at key moments throughout the Scriptures. A covenant is, is simply an agreement between two peoples or, or two parties in which they both agree to, to mutually carry out undertakings for one another's behalf. It's something that is important in the biblical narrative. It's something that's important for us as a church as we enter into a covenant relationship with one another as members of Grace Baptist. We do so, and as, as many of you have seen, when someone joins our church, we, we ask, have you read the church covenant? Do you agree to the church covenant? And that person would affirm that. If they don't affirm it, then it stops right there and they do not join. And then we ask you, will you affirm that with them? Will you covenant with them? If, if you said no, then the person is not, is not accepted and brought into membership. But when we say yes on both sides, we are making a mutual commitment to carry out the covenant towards one another. We have an agreement, a covenant agreement, a covenant commitment to one another as a church family. Covenants are important for God's people. We recently watched again the, the trilogy of Lord of the Rings. This time, for some reason, we watched it backwards. I'm not real sure why we did that. But the movie that we got to last was the first one. And the first one is The Fellowship of the Ring. And you may remember, if you've read the the book, or if you've watched the movie in the Fellowship of the Ring, the, the task is kind of placed upon Frodo, the hobbit, to take the ring, the evil ring, back to Mordor to destroy it. But he doesn't know, and he's not really committed to that initially. He's just committed to getting it out of the Shire, he thinks. Well, he comes and he gathers, and there's everybody gathered around, and, and this kind of conversation, discussion breaks out of who's going to take the ring. Who's going to do it? Frodo thought he was done. He had gotten it to where it needed to get to. Now somebody else could take it further. Well, an argument ensues. 
a great debate of, no, you, I'm going to take it. No, I'm going to take it. You'll never do it. You'll never be able to succeed in this. Everybody's fighting. And ultimately, Frodo steps forward, this little hobbit. He steps forward and he says, I will take it. I'll take the ring. Everybody gets quiet around him. They step back and they look at him. Everybody kind of uncertain what to do until Aragon steps forward and says, you have my sword and I will give my life to defend you. And at that moment, the others do the same and they all step forward, Gimli the dwarf. I'm not going to remember all the characters. I shouldn't have started saying names, right? But Legolas, the elf, and, and, and uh, Boromir, they all step forward and they affirm their commitment that they will protect Frodo and his friends as they carry the ring back and to destroy it to Mordor. And they covenant with one another. They commit to one another. Frodo commits that I will do it. I will take it. And everyone else commits that they will protect him and defend him and strengthen him, go before him, do what it takes to help him take the ring. It's the picture of a covenant. In the scriptures, we have covenants. You go all the way back to, to Noah, and you have the covenant that God made with Noah to never destroy the earth again by flood. You would then read of the covenant that he made with Abram to, to make him into a great nation and to grant him and bless him with lamb, land, not lamb, land. We read of the covenant that he made with the people at Sinai, giving them the law of a, a, a blessing and a, a cursing of whether they obey or keep the law. And then we read of the covenant that we'll think more about tonight, actually, that he makes with David, that he will always have someone on the throne, that David's throne would be established by the Lord eternally, forever. Covenants are important. And what we see when we read the scriptures, we see this consistent theme throughout the scriptures of all those covenants that we just talked about. We see God's people rebelling and failing in their side in the covenant, but we see At the same note, we see God always keeping the covenant. He's always faithful to keep the covenant. He upholds his promise. He is faithful to do what he says he will do. That's what we've been looking at this Christmas season. We've thought about Advent. We've thought about the faithfulness of God that every promise God makes, God keeps. That he always upholds his covenant commitment. And so it brings us to another covenant this morning. The covenant found in Jeremiah 31 is known as the, the new covenant. Our passage today in which God promises to establish a new covenant with his people. In Exodus 20, 24, just a little bit of background history, God gives his law to the people at Mount Sinai. And that's that covenant we talked about at Mount Sinai with the people. The people in that covenant were to obey the law. And if they obeyed, God would then bless them. And so the people make a commitment. Exodus 24, 7, they confess all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. Well, that didn't go well, did it? Right? They didn't do that, but they had agreed that they would do it. When that covenant's made, Moses confirms or establishes, inaugurates the covenant with the shedding of blood. He sacrifices an ox of which he says, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So in order to establish, to inaugurate, to confirm the covenant, blood was shed, an ox was sacrificed, then blood was sprinkled about to establish the covenant. But the people, as we said, did not uphold the covenant. 
And what we learn quickly in the Old Testament as we read, read out what happens is that man in his own power cannot perfectly obey the law and live according to a holy life that God sets before. Time and time again, the people fell. They rebel. Which brings us to the prophet Jeremiah and what we read here in Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah prophesies in the, the time of Judah's fall and, and into the hands of Babylon, which is God's punishment on the nation. And he's prophesying to them, and amidst this judgment, what we have in, in verse thir- or chapter 31 is we have this word of hope that God speaks through Jeremiah to the people. And essentially, we're thinking about love this week. And what we find, what we see is when he speaks these words, we're reminded that God's love would not be quenched by the people's unfaithfulness. God's love would not run dry. It was steadfast even when the people were not. Even when the people rebelled, God's love remained. He was faithful. And so what word of hope does God give? Let's read this morning. Jeremiah 31, beginning in verse 31. God's word says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. He's saying who's going to make a new covenant with all the people of God. Who not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Chapter 31 is, is nestled in the middle of what scholars call the book of consolation. And Jeremiah 30 to 33 is referred to the book of consolation. And this perhaps is the greatest word of, of consolation. It's the greatest word of comfort that we find in these chapters. Perhaps in the all of the Old Testament, perhaps, you might can make an argument for that. That God would establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Here in this covenant, in this prophecy that he will establish this covenant, we find and we see and we have an example of God's mercy and grace. We see his mercy in that he did not destroy man for breaking the previous covenant. Man had made very clear that he was rebellious, that he was transgressed, that he did not keep the covenant that he made with God. But God is merciful. And not only is God merciful, but he goes beyond just mere mercy and he shows grace. He gives them something that they certainly did not deserve. He says, I will bless you by establishing a new covenant. I'm going to make a new covenant with you and it's going to be founded on heart change and and forgiveness. I will do this. It's the grace of God abounding in a new covenant. It's been noted that the new covenant is the divinely promised answer to the perennial problem of Israel's hard-hearted rebellion against God. This perennial problem, time and time and time again, the people rebel against God. But God speaks a word of promise to the people. 
He promises a new covenant in response to their hard-hearted rebellion. Now look at verse 32. In verse 32, God says that this covenant would be different. It would be different. It would not be like the covenant, the old covenant, but it would be different. How is it be different? There's three ways we read in this passage that it's going to be different that we need to understand. The first thing is this, is that the new covenant would be unilateral. It would be unilateral, be kind of one-sided. If you just note the repetition of I will in that passage, in verses 31 to 34, how many times you read I will, I will, I will, God speaking of what he will do. Five times in there, God says I will, describing what he will do. There's only two places where it says they shall. They shall. And in both of those, it's talking about who the people of God would be. Not what they would do, but who they would be. Okay? So we have what God is going to do, and as a result, what it's going to do in the life of God's people. This is a, a, a covenant that God is making. The covenant at Sinai was what, what you might call bilateral. There was two parties. The people were to obey, and God would, was to bless. But here, God is simply saying, I will do this. This is my covenant I'm making with you. And he says, I will do this, 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 and you will be, you will be. God is making this covenant with them. And this covenant would rest on him, the faithful one. It would rest on him. The second way that the covenant would be different is it would be written not on a rock or a scroll. What would it be written on? It would be written on the heart. It's not going to be written on, on a rock. As the Ten Commandments were written on stone. It's not going to be something that's external. It's not going to be written on a scroll. It's going to be written on the hearts of the people. This covenant would address the heart problem of man, which men has shown themselves unable to obey. It's a heart problem. They could not obey because of their heart. And so God is going to inscribe and write the law upon their heart. No longer would it be stored in the ark of the covenant, but it would be stored in the heart of man. It's a new covenant, a different covenant. And what this does is it enables man to obey. It enables man to obey. He is able to carry out the commitment and the law which is written on his heart. The third way, third way that the covenant is different then, is that it would be based on a relationship with God secured by the forgiveness of sins. It would be based on a relationship with God secured by the forgiveness of sins. You see that in verse 34. He makes the statement there that they shall know me. They shall know me. That will be something distinct about this covenant. The, the covenant previously was made with who? The nation of Israel. Right? And as a covenant made with the nation of Israel, it just brought every, everyone in that was a part of the nation. Some of them trusted the Lord. Some of them followed the Lord. Some of them did not. And so you had a situation where the Israelites looked to one another and they would say, hey, trust the Lord, brother. Trust the Lord. You're living in rebellion. Come back to the Lord. Trust the Lord. Live faithfully to the Lord. Pursue the Lord. Obey the Lord. And then some of them said, no, I'm not doing that. And they were just living however they wanted to, living in rebellion. But here, he says, different, because they shall all know me in this covenant. This covenant would be different. They would all know me. It is based on a relationship, not just on being a nation. It's based on a relationship with God. The covenant is made with those who know 
the Lord. What does this mean? It means that we can rest in what he says in verse 34. That I will forgive their iniquity. I will remember their sin no more. That it is framed by the knowledge of the Lord and the forgiveness of the Lord. And the forgiveness of the Lord means that there is nothing that can sever our relationship with God. That's important, Christian. That's an important truth to remember that as you go about your life, there are times where where you sin and you rebel, but the forgiveness of the Lord secures your relationship with him, that that sin cannot sever your relationship with him. It's the new covenant. God prophesies, God promises the new covenant. You think about the covenant he makes with Noah. He speaks it and makes that covenant in that moment. Think about the covenant he makes with Abram. He speaks it to Abram and says, this is the covenant I am making right now with you, and this is what will happen out of it. The covenant that he speaks to the people, it is for then. The covenant he speaks with David, it is for then. He is making that covenant with them, and it will result, or with him, and it will result in his throne being established forever. But this covenant here, Jeremiah says, the Lord will make. He will make. God says, I will make a covenant with the house of Israel. When? When will this occur? Do you see any timing there? Do you see any notes in that passage about when that will happen? Really, the only temporal note, the only time note is in verse 31, where the Lord just says, days are coming. Days are coming. It's quite open-ended. It will be in the future. But he doesn't say at this point, at this day, in three days, in three years. He just says days are coming when I will make a covenant. So the people then are left with hope, but they're left with a question of when would this be carried out? When would this covenant be established? What will it look like? How will it be put in place? Behold, the days are coming. When would those days come? Well, we read the New Testament. And what we find in the New Testament is that the reason that we come and we gather today and we celebrate tomorrow is because it was the coming of Jesus Christ that established the new covenant. He was the one. He is the covenant-sealing Messiah. And there's two passages I want to look at in, in the New Testament. The first one, you can flip there if you want to, but I just want to read to you from Luke 22, and then we're going to jump into Hebrews 8. So this is when you want to have flip over to Hebrews 8. But I want you to listen to the first passage that really helps us to understand Christ being the covenant-keeping, the covenant-sealing Messiah is in Luke 22. Luke 22, when Jesus gathers the disciples together and they observe the Passover. Listen to what he says to them. In Luke 22, verse, starting in verse 14, we read, And when the hour came, he reclined at table, and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup 
that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. It is the new covenant in my blood. In Jeremiah, God said, the days are coming when I will make a new covenant with my people. Jesus sits in front of his disciples in Luke 22 and says, the day is here. This is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus is the covenant sealing Messiah and it is his blood that inaugurated and sealed the new covenant. It is his blood that brings forth forgiveness of sin. It's his blood that changes our hearts and inscribes the law of God upon our heart. It's his blood that makes us God's people, that God would look and say, I will be their God and they will be my people. It's his blood that restores our relationship with him. Yes, Jesus came. We, we celebrate today the coming of Christ. We celebrate his incarnation when the word of God, the eternally existent word of God takes on flesh and becomes a man. We celebrate that moment that Jesus came and he came to live life as a man. But this one who came, this eternally existent word of God who came to live life as a man would then come and die on a cross as a sacrifice for our sins to seal the promise new covenant. The baby who was born in a wooden manger would die on a wooden cross because that is why he came. Jesus knew why he came. That's why he said that in Luke 19, or 22, 19 to 20. He knows exactly what awaited. He knows why he came. He said, this is my body. It is broken for you. That's going to be broken. I, I wanted to I wanted to take this Passover meal with you. He says in verse 14, I earnestly desire, verse 15, I earnestly desire to eat the Passover with you before I suffer. He knows what's coming. He knows why he came, and he came to give his life for man. He came to pour out his blood to seal the new covenant. He came, Mark 10, 45. He knew why he came. He, he came to give his life as a ransom for many, he said. He said, I've come to give my life as a ransom for many. In Luke 19.10, he said, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. He knew what his purpose was. What Brother Mike read earlier in John 3.17, it says, for God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. In 1 Timothy 1.15, we read, Christ Jesus came into the world. Why? To save sinners. Christ came to save us. In Titus 2.14, we read that he gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Christ knew why he came. He came to save us. He came to pay the price for sin. He came to establish, to inaugurate, to seal the new covenant that God had spoken through Jeremiah. I will make a new covenant. That covenant is in Christ. Now, flip over to Hebrews 8 if you're not already there. Hebrews 8. I want to encourage you just sometime today, before tomorrow morning, to read Hebrews 8 and 9. We, we don't have time to read all of this passage this morning. 
But in the book of Hebrews, the, the author is making a very focused and a weighty argument, evidence. He's putting forth the truth, the reality, that Christ is better. He's better. And he starts at the beginning, and everything that he would look to, everything that the people would look to, he says Christ is better. Christ is better than Moses. He's, he's better than the angels. He's better than Melchizedek. And he, he just goes throughout, and he says Christ is better. Over and over, he's exalting Christ as better. And so we come to Hebrews 8 and 9, and we read of the writer saying that Christ is a better high priest. He is a better high priest because he is a better sacrifice. Not because he brings a better sacrifice, but because he is the better sacrifice. And so he is the better high priest. It's a theological explanation of Luke 22 when Jesus says this blood, this, this cup is the blood of the new covenant for you, poured out for you. Well, Hebrews 8 and 9 kind of takes that and unpacks it theologically so we can understand what in the world did Jesus mean by saying that. That's Hebrews 8 and 9. This is what he means. So I just want to kind of hit the high points. We don't have time to read them all, but just start in Hebrews 8 and just look at the word and just kind of track with me. If you look at verse 6, what we learn in Hebrews 8, 6 is that this is a better covenant. When Jesus inaugurates the new covenant, it's a better covenant because it is enacted on better promises, he says. It is much more than the new covenant that he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. Why? Why is it enacted on a better promise? It's because it is solely upon the promise of God. The people, you remember Exodus 24, they promised, oh yeah, we will do it. We'll do it. We'll obey. And they didn't. There in Hebrews 8 uh, verse 9, they did not continue in my covenant. They broke their promise. But this one is enacted on a better promise. Why? Because it's enacted on the promise of the faithful God. In verses 10 through 12, we see that it is based on God's initiative and God's work. Now, if, if you've skimmed here, you'll see that Hebrews 8, 8 through 12 is what? It's just quoting. What's it quoting? Jeremiah 31. It's a verbatim quote of Jeremiah 31 of, of God saying, I will make this new covenant. And so if you look, if you're, you're my, in, in my copy of God's Word, it's kind of like written in more of a poetic style, poetic form, the way it's laid out. And it's easy to see this here. It's the same thing in Jeremiah 31. It's just easier visually to see it. But if you'll take note in verses 10 to 12, you see the I wills. You remember how I said the I wills and the they shalls? Look at, look at here in verse 10. I will put my laws in their minds. I will be their God. They shall be my people. They shall not teach each one. They will all know me. I, verse 12, will be merciful towards them. I will remember their sins no more. So what you see here is that the covenant is based on God's initiative and work. If you look at it, the I wills frame the they shalls. So at the beginning is I will, the work of God. At the end is I will, the work of God. And it frames, it bookends who we will be. So God's work bookends, it frames, it binds in who we will be. That's how the covenant works. That God will forgive us. God will put uh, uh, his law in our hearts. He will be our God. He will be merciful. Oh, what do we have to do, Lord? What do we have to do? Oh, you're just going to be my people. You're just going to be my people. 
Wow. Really? Yes. Really. You're just going to know me. Okay? That's all? Like, what else should I do? No, I'm, I'm doing it. This is my covenant I'm making with you. It is all dependent on me. It's my work of grace. Unmerited grace. Established and founded and girded up by my faithfulness. It's the new covenant. In Christ. Based on God's promise and blessing. Verse 13. We read on the conclusion. He says then in speaking of new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. (laughs) It's obsolete. It's not that there's new instructions. It's not that we find new things out about God. It's not as though the law is just cast aside. But our knowledge of God, our relationship with God is solely contingent upon the new covenant, not on our obedience. Obedience does not merit or earn God's favor and salvation. God's favor and salvation is given by his unmerited grace to us in Christ. It's the new covenant. We get over to chapter 9. And in verses 1 through 14, we, we learn that while both covenants, he says, both covenants had provisions and regulations for worship. They both had instructions for the sacrifice of, uh, of, of given, sacrifices given for the atonement of sin, for the payment of sin. The, and, and, and the old covenant, it depended daily on year, or it depended on daily and yearly sacrifices that happened time and time again as the high priest brought animals in and they sacrificed them. They, they paid their blood. There was a great detail on what these sacrifices looked like. And it was something that happened time and time and time and time again. It was really a bloody system over and over and over again. But the new covenant is different. It depends on the one-time sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The one-time sufficient work of Christ. When Christ's blood is shed, it is finished. It's done. His blood pays for sin and secures an eternal redemption for all who believe. That's what he says in verse 12. He secures an eternal redemption. So we don't go to Christ daily asking him to sacrifice over and over and over again. No, he has done it. It is finished. We trust the finished work of Christ. That's it. We don't do Christ plus anything. It is simply Christ and his blood given for us. Now, I do want to just remind you of verses 15 to 28. Look at verses 15 to 28. Just hear this. Think about all we've talked about. The old covenant what it was based on, the repetition of sacrifices that high priests going into the Holy of Holies, into the temple to offer sacrifices time and time again. With that in the back of your mind, listen. Therefore, he, talking about Christ, is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as one who made it is alive. Therefore, 
Not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet and wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. You remember we, we talked about that already. That's Exodus, the establishment of the covenant at Mount Sinai. Verse 21, in the same way, just like he did that. In the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. It's important. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. There has to be the shedding of blood. Thus, verse 23, thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things. So he's saying Christ entered. He didn't just enter the temple. He didn't just go into the temple that man had constructed. Christ does something better because Christ is better, right? But he goes into, verse 23, but into heaven itself. Now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have, to have, he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages. Why? Why did he appear? To put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. He didn't bring in an ox. He didn't bring a lamb. He didn't bring in two turtle doves. He brought himself. He brought himself. His own blood to pay the price for your sins, for my sins. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Church, that's Advent. See, we anticipate tomorrow, but we anticipate tomorrow for the celebration. We know what tomorrow is. We know what happened tomorrow, don't we? It's not as though most of you in here, most of you know the Bible, some of you don't. Most of you, when you wake up, you're not going to go, <gasps> What? Jesus was born. Now you know it. We anticipate the celebration of that. But what we do anticipate with eager expectation that we don't know everything about is the return of Christ. And that's what the writer of Hebrews says. He says, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. That's next week. Pastor Mike is going to preach on that. That Christ will return. 
And Advent is right here, not to deal with sin, but to save those who what? Are eagerly waiting for him. We're eagerly waiting for our Savior, the one who's paid the price, the one whose blood sealed the covenant. We're eagerly awaiting him. It's the new covenant. It's the gospel. It's the good news that God has made a way for us to be saved. And that way is through the sending of Jesus Christ, his own son, to live a perfect life, to die for our sins, to shed his own blood, to establish the new covenant that God promised in Jeremiah 31. And he rose from the grave, promising, promising that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. So this Christmas Eve, why does it matter? Why do we not only talk about a little manger? Why does it matter? Let me just quickly give you some reasons why it matters. The first reason it matters is this, is that it is simply another testimony of God's faithfulness. We've looked at that time and time again this Christmas season, that God is faithful, and this is another testimony of God's faithfulness. I hope you've been reminded this Advent season that God keeps his promises. Every promise made by God is a promise kept by God. This is very real, street-level, everyday, practical theology. God is faithful. He's faithful. He's faithful to keep covenant with you, believer. He's faithful to do what he says he will do. This is another testimony of that. The second reason this matters is that it means, if you're a Christian, that your sins have been paid for. Your sins have been paid for. That's what it means. That our sins have been paid for. Now, this is based on a very important presupposition, isn't it? And that presupposition is this, is that there is a moral authority to whom we have rebelled. There is a moral authority. Ethics and morality, they're not some self-determined deal. They're not determined by a majority vote. It's not as though morality and ethics are relative. That what's true for you is true for you. What's true for me is true for me. We know that. You may want to argue about that. You may want to debate it. But it does not work in everyday life. You don't live that way. You don't function that way. So stop trying to function that way in your relationship to God. It's not how it is. It's not truth. It means God is real. Creation is real. And if God is real and creation is real, that means morality is real. And then we see that our rebellion is real. Our rebellion is real. So our sins, our rebellion against God, we do have a problem that that is caused. Because God is just, and he does punish sin. Listen, a couple weeks ago, Sidney was involved in this kind of pretty minor hit-and-run accident. You know what? We're not like, oh, well, who cares? We want justice. Oh, that guy found. I want her car fixed, right? Let's get some insurance money coming in. I'm not like, eh, no big deal. I'm glad you ran off. Don't even want to talk to you. No, we want justice. Why? Because that's how it works. We know that. We know there is right and there is wrong. And the same is true on a much larger scale. The same is true when it comes to God. God is just. God is holy. God is righteous. 
And sin has to be punished. It has to be punished. But that's the beauty of the cross, that Christ came and he gave his life. He paid the price. He shed his blood. Romans 3.26 says that God on the cross was shown to be both the just, he's shown to be just, right? He carried out his righteousness, his holiness perfectly because sin was punished, but he was also seen to be justifier, the one who causes us to be justified before God through faith in Christ, all on the cross, inaugurating the new covenant. The new covenant means that our sins have been paid. The third thing it means is that my salvation is secure. Why does it mean that? Well, it means that because it's wholly dependent on Christ. It doesn't depend on me. It depends on Christ and his finished work. The new covenant is unilateral. It's what God has done on our behalf. I cannot nullify it. I cannot erase it. I cannot remove it. I can't back up and rewind the DVR of history and go, nope, not sufficient. No, when Christ paid the price with his blood, it was sufficient, and he died once for all. It is finished, it is done, it is over, it is settled. Sin has been paid for for all who call on the name of the Lord, and that makes our relationship secure in him, in him. That's why we read Hebrews 9.26 that uh, Jesus appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. He put it away. He put it away. The last reason, the last reason it's important is where we started. It's the supreme demonstration of the love of God. It's the supreme demonstration of the love of God. It was the love of God that led Christ to shed his own blood to seal the new covenant. It's the love of, love of God that sent Christ to us on our behalf. So this Christmas season, remember that it was the love of God that sent Jesus and sent Jesus to die on the cross. That's why John wrote in 1 John 4, in this, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that, why did He send Him? Why did He send Him? So that we might live through Him so that we might live through him. And John says, and this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Our time of response this morning is the observation of the Lord's Supper. It's how we're going to close our time together. I just want to invite our deacons to make their way down to prepare to serve the Lord's Supper. As they do, I, I want to just remind you the anticipation of Christmas and celebrating the joy of the coming of Christ. And I want you to remember, I want you to remember that the virgin-born Messiah who lay peacefully in a manger would be the covenant-sealing Messiah who would die on the cross to save us from our sins. In just a moment, the deacons will serve the Lord's Supper and we just want to invite you to partake. If you're a follower of Christ, please partake. If you're visiting with us, we understand this is the Lord's table. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ in faith, we invite you to partake. If you're here and you have a child or you're an unbeliever, a child that's an unbeliever, allow the elements to pass by and consider the words of Christ.
that this is His blood poured out for us, for our salvation, the new covenant. Let's pray together and let's observe the Lord's Supper. God, we thank you for your great grace. We thank you for your great love. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for dying on the cross for our sins. We ask your blessing on this meal together. We ask in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen.